If you look at the outline, it looks very familiar because we didn't get to finish last week. So I just reprinted the same outline. Uh, one of the primary sources that I use for this is a, a commentary by Philip Riken. Riken was pastor of 10th Presbyterian for several years, and now he's the president of Wheaton. But he talks about the overarching theme of Exodus is a people redeemed for God's glory. The Ten Commandments were provided for the people to be able to redeem people, to be able to see how to live in harmony and to honor God. And then we see this, you know, of course, taken through to the New Testament when, when the Pharisees ask Jesus, you know, or the young, uh, one person questions Jesus, what is the commandments? And he says, it's summarized in this, to love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And all the, the prophets, all the prophets are summarized in these. So I, I love this quote from Sinclair Lewis talking about the fact that how the commandments point us, you know, the third use of the law, that they point us to our need for the Savior. And speaking of Jesus, Ferguson says, the lawmaker became the law keeper, but then took our place and condemnation as though he were the lawbreaker. Whereas the Ten Commandments were the unbeliever's accuser, they become the believer's exhorter towards blessing. So, you know, pointing to the fact that only Jesus, only Jesus perfectly kept the law. And the law reminds us, you know, of our need for a Savior, the third use of the law. So I just wanted to go over, kind of summarize for those that weren't here, and then we'll go ahead. We got to about the fifth commandment last week, and we'll finish up hopefully today. So let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, for it points us to your holiness. And your law is a reminder of how a redeemed people can live in peace and harmony. You provided it for the Israelites, and right to this very day, it points us in our culture about um, civil order, but more importantly, how to please you. We thank you that you are our God and our Father, and we ask that you help us to redeem this time, that the words that I uh, teach on would be that which pleases you and are holy in your sight. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we talked about the commandments are given at a point in time where uh, the Israelites have already been redeemed. It says that God heard their plea in Egypt, right? And uh, the, the narrative through Exodus, we see how God brings uh, judgment against the Egyptians for idol worship. Every one of the plagues is tied somehow. Every, yeah. Every one of the plagues is tied to one of the false idols that the, the, the Egyptians honored, right? They, they, they worshiped the river, they worshiped the sun, they worshiped uh, living, living things, and each one of those plagues were God's way of saying, you know, this is a false idol. Uh, so the Israelites are redeemed. God delivers them. They're a delivered people. So by the time that you come to Exodus 20, it's not, God is not saying, these are a list of rules you need to keep for your salvation. These are a way for you to live in a way that not only honors God, but also will keep civil society. Um, so God is our redeemer. The first one on your, God is our redeemer. Therefore, we are to keep his commandments. God identifies himself here as Yahweh. And it's interesting, too, in Exodus 19, that God sets, you know, sets the scene. The, the, the mountain, the Mount, Mount, of Sinai, Mount Sinai, is covered in thunder and lightning and smoke. It says the Israelites were fearful. They wanted Moses to go. They didn't want to. And God had warned them that they were not to come anywhere near the mountain, for it would be, be their undoing. And they were not to, to, to break through. It would be their death. Uh, and unholy people cannot come before a holy God. 
And I like this quote. If you uh, remember in the 19th century, early 20th century, A.W. Pink did a lot of books, did a commentary on most of the 66 books of the Bible. And there's one in Exodus, he says this, the commandment's uniqueness appears first in that the revelation of God at Sinai, which was to serve for all coming ages as the grand expression of his holiness, and the summation of man's duties was attended with such awe-inspiring phenomenon that the very manner of their publication plainly showed that God himself assigned the Ten Commandments peculiar importance. The Ten Commandments were uttered by God in an audible voice. We talked about that last week. God spoke, right, directly. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, it says the prophets, you know, shared God's word. But at, at Sinai, God spoke audibly through lightnings and the sound of a trumpet. Um, and then these ten words, the Greek Decalogue, the ten words, uh, were written in stone to, to speak of their permanence. And we know later on when it talks about Solomon building the temple and the ark is brought in, that what is in, in the Ark of the Covenant? The two tablets, right? Permanence. God writes it in stone. They're, they, are, they are a statement that, that endures, that, 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 that is you know, to be for all time, for all people. Thus, in the unique honor conferred upon the Ten Commandments, we may perceive its paramount importance in God's government. So, a redeemed people, they're provided this at, at Exodus 20. Exodus 20 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, you know, once again, reminding them that they were an enslaved people, and they were freed now because of God's grace to them. You know, we know that the Israelites did not deserve this, but that God said that God heard, heard their plea and delivered them. And we talked last week about God's jealousy, that God will not abide by having honor to any other God, any other demigods. The world is filled, and we see this all through the Old Testament. You know, God, one of the last warnings before um, the Israelites go into the Promised Land is, you know, be careful not to uh, become involved with the gods of the people, the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Gergesites all had, you know, a whole um, panorama of gods they served. And God says, you know, you are not to become involved with that. And we see tragically again and again. Uh, one of the things, sad things it says in, in the uh, first and second kings and first and second chronicles, when it talks about the different kings that, that succeeded Solomon, it says, you know, they did good in the sight of God or they did terrible in the sight of God. But one of the last comments tends to be they took, either they took the high places and all the places of false worship down, or they left them there. The culture was just so imbued with false worship to, to idols. So God warns them, you know, again and again. And we see the tragic consequences. The, the judgment that comes against the northern tribes in 586 and, and against Judah in 722 are a judgment because of the people's hearts not being, not being proper before God, not being holy before God. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. No toleration of idols. No, no, no sense of uh, that anything should, you know, take the place of God, the holy God alone. You shall not make for yourself a carved image in the in the Hebrew. You know, the idea that anything made with stone, that or carved with uh, stone or with wood, or any likeness that is in the heaven above or in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So God tells them the consequence, but He also gives a promise. Okay, the consequence is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But then there is a promise, but showing love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Right? At, at, at 
at Sinai, they're told, you know, there's, there is consequence, but there's also God's uh, kindness and love and grace shown. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And we talked about the Hebrew word saw, which essentially means emptiness. We are not to lift up God's name to emptiness, is what the Hebrew says. We are not to lift up his name. And I talked a little bit about, you know, being in different work, work situations when I first came to Las Vegas working in a construction company, and how it, it became you know, a mindless kind of repetition. People weren't even aware that they were using God's name in vain. But God's name is holy. And, you know, one of the sad things in our culture is we see that 40 years ago, there was still some consequence about, you know, lifting God's name up in that way. You didn't do it. Today, turn the television on, you see it all over the place. There, there's a lifting up of God's name in emptiness throughout the culture, right? And it, it's painful. And uh, I, I believe a lot of people that get in that habit don't even realize they're doing it. Um, yes? Any of those things. Yeah, one of, one of the things that we talked about last week, synecdoche, the idea that the, the, the commandments are so brief. I mean, most of them are one, one sentence. But each of them uh, talks about so many other things, you know, point to categories far beyond what that one sentence says. We'll talk about this when we talk about murder and adultery. Um, that that uh, synecdoche is something that represents a part of a whole. So we talked last week about, you know, if, you, if someone came, if I missed church, let's say, I was out of town, and I came and asked one of you, how, um, uh, how was church? Well, a lot of faces were missing from Spring Meadows last week. I wouldn't assume that you were talking about, you know, headless bodies were, that were here, but their faces were missing, right? So a part that reflects the whole. And we see the commandments are much. There's such a richness uh, to the commandments, you know. And we'll talk about, especially when we get to the uh, sixth and seventh commandment. Yeah. yeah. There was a meme on Facebook that was rather thought-provoking, um, having to do with taking God's name in vain. And uh -huh. said, what if instead of using God's name, people substituted someone else's name? <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and it becomes habitual. People are not aware. Um, I, there was also a, a cartoon I saw a couple of years ago, and it, it showed um, Moses holding the two tablets, and Moses is smiling, and he says, well, now people will know what to do, right? Uh, very naive understanding, you know, that obviously, no, we, we see through the Old Testament narrative, you know, that very quickly they forgot what God had told them. Um, I, I really enjoy this quote, the that Riken puts in the Exodus commentary. Uh, could I call him Terry? Could you read that for me? At the bottom there. Who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the moral law reveals the full duty of the Christian life. This is another use of God's law. It shows God's redeeming to all how to live for God's glory. When we give the law its full interpretation, we gain a better grasp of God's righteous standard in all its perfection, and thus we have a better idea of how to please him. Put this in theological terms. When we know what the law requires, we can understand the doctrine of sanctification. This is why we study God's law. 
understand of your need for Christ and his gospel, and to learn how many ways we can glorify God for his grace to us. All right, so the third use of the law. The first use of the law, pointing a mirror to our sin, pointing to our need, you know, our sinful nature, and, and that we stand before our holy God. The second use, to keep order in a civil society. Imagine, you know, we talked last week, if the Ten Commandments were, were part and parcel of how people lived. We wouldn't need to have uh, the police and, and the military. And I mean, it, it would be an amazing, amazing thing. And, and we won't have that till heaven. Right? When God's, uh, we're in God's presence, that'll be the only time when we'll really see the full fulfillment of, of, of what it would be like. But the, the cultural implication, and you know, we, we see one of the, if you read the news this week, there's a debate going on in, in, um, with Metro and with the, the city council about whether or not to put up cameras for you know, uh, red light running. Well, people abided by the law, you know, and... I can say there have been times when I, I've pledged the yellows. I try never, <laughs> never gone through a red. But you see the terrible consequence. How many people have been killed in the last, I think in Las Vegas last year, there were seven people killed directly uh, to red light running. So, you know, the civil law is there for a purpose, to maintain order in, in the society. Um, the, other question? Bob? Does our culture use God's name the word holy, mm -hmm. holy this and holy that. Right. Holy God is holy. Right. And that, that diminishes God. And that also. Yeah, all, all kinds of ways we, you know, we see that. Um, God's omnipresence is reflected in before him. You know, there's no place that, that escapes God's, God's awareness. So that's why you know, it was an awful thing for the Israelites to fall to idol worship. If you've read uh, Tim Keller's book, um, Counterfeit Gods, our culture is filled with idols today, you know, money, power, uh, sexual idolatry. Um, you know, one of the things that um, we see all too often is you know, how this just has cascaded down in the culture. You know, the, the rates, for instance, of uh, sexual abuse amongst children, you know, it's a direct, direct tie to uh, just that you know, not taking seriously what God has said about purity. Um, God refuses to be worshipped by means of images. Uh, I shared last week, being raised in the Catholic Church, there are images all over the place, right? And those become stumbling blocks. You know, when we're, we're worshiping, they become idols to, to people. And uh, the, the, uh, when the Reformation came, um, a lot of the Puritans, you know, took, went um, very um, comprehensively and made sure that, that there, there weren't any that statuary and, and uh, stained glass and so forth were taken down. To the point that R.C. Sproul once said that maybe it went a little too far because art is also a reflection of God's beauty, right? Having been to the Metropolitan this summer, the blessing of it, and seeing all the paintings that are religious themes. You know? So there's a balance there, but not ever to be, never to be a, a point of worship, an idol. Um, his name is at all times to be honored, right? We talked about how it is not in the culture. God is sovereign over all of daily life's daily events. You know, we serve a working and resting God. The kind of six in one we talked about last week. The Sabbath was provided not because God needs rest, God, but God was given man an example. And we certainly see in the culture how that's been walked away from. And why uh, you'll hear people uh, say that it's odd that like Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A, they close on Sunday. Well, they, 
they believe, right? They're honoring what God said, that six days is enough, one day. I shared the story last week. I really didn't get a chance to finish it, but a but, uh, story that was um, shared by um, Rob, uh, um, our former elder's brother. Rob, what's... Rayburn, thank you, thank you. Uh, Rob Rayburn about the, the picture of a, a man uh, coming out of service and seeing a beggar, a homeless person up in Seattle. And uh, the guy takes, feels, you know, some compassion. So he takes seven dollars out and gives six of them to the beggar. And the homeless person ends, ends up uh, giving a roundhouse punch to the guy and knocking him down and stealing the seventh one. He said, that's kind of like, you know, when we don't honor, not the... the, the the seventh day was to, the day of God. God's day, the first day of the week was to be different, you know. And we are we to honor that, you know, to give honor to God's day, and we certainly see, uh, you know, in the last twenty years, even up to twenty years ago, certain cities still abided by blue laws where stores were shut down. When I was a kid, you had to have everything done by Saturday night because it was very hard to find anything. I think the only thing in in, in Santa Monica was like the local liquor store was open seven days a week, but everything else was shut down. You know, not we don't see that anymore. In fact, you hear a lot of stores, and we are open on Sunday. You know, they trumpet that that that, that is a, something that uh, is put before the public. So God um, gives us that example. That he's a working and resting God. There, there is there's a rhythm. And one of the judgments against the Israelites is that they weren't abiding by this. It says that, you know, one of the things that God does is gives them seventy years of Sabbath rest. God tells them, you know, that even with the land, the land was to be restored after the seventh year. They were to rest their crops, rest the land. And a farmer will tell you the land does far better when that happens, you know, when, when the, the land is able to kind of restore itself. So we see the practicality all through, all through the commandments. That God is, you know, giving these statutes for both uh, a sign of obedience to him, but also because it benefits in, in, in multiple ways people. So we got through that and we started talking about the fifth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? Honor thy father and mother. Commandment with a promise. What's the promise? We may live long, right? So um, the Hebrew word for honor is kaved, meaning weight, you know, um, and the honor given to our parents reflects honor to all those in authority over us. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, Dr. Mojier in his commentary talks about how um, we need to, you know, abide by the fact that every, everyone, when someone is placed in an authority over us, we need to give them the honor that's due their position. And sometimes in work situations, that's not always easy, right? So that commandment doesn't just bespeak of uh, honor to parents, but to um, all those in authority over us. When I um, shared, when I was teaching a few months ago, I shared uh, with my students about um, being pulled over on um, Cheyenne or Craig Road years and years ago when Craig Road was empty desert. And I remember uh, the brightness of the lights behind me and being blinded. And when the officer came up to the car, I did not sass him. I said, yes, sir. You give honor, right? That you give honor to that position. You know, he, he's in, in a civil authority over over me. You give honor to that. You don't. Um, and uh, I had a coworker talk about uh, you know some of the encounters he had in Los Angeles growing up with the police and and some of the disrespect that was shown him. So it goes both ways. 
But certainly, you know, when we're dealing with someone in authority over us, we are to give honor to that position. When they ask us to do that which is ungodly, no. You, know, you, you don't do that. You, you, you reject that. But, yes, Robert. Honoring your father and mother is a practical thing to do also. Mm. Learn, learn from their wisdom and their experience in life. The children don't have those kind of experiences. And, and, and the fact that they, children disobey their parents when they, they don't do that, because they parent knows that that's not a safe thing to do, but the child ignores that mm -hmm. and does it, they, they may cut their life short. Right. And uh, so that's... Uh, yeah, lots of examples of, of especially, uh, you know, when a teenagers get driver's licenses when they didn't uh, respect what their mothers and fathers said about a car being a weapon. Is, is it there a, a, a In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it says those that disrespected their parents were to be taken to the gate and stoned. And the Old Testament law took it very, very seriously. <laughs> there we go. So just overarchingly, you see this, this pattern that the first and fourth, fourth commandments are our duty to God, the fifth our duty to our parents, our family, and societal obligations, and then six to ten, our duty to our neighbors. Love of God, love of our neighbors. And you'll notice there's a pattern too. Uh, worship God alone, talking about our hearts before God. Our deeds, you know, false worship, using God's name in vain, disobeying the Sabbath, uh, honoring our parents. Uh, and then six to ten, our duty to our neighbors, right? We're not to steal, we're not to lie, we're not to commit adultery. You know, we're not to uh, bear false witness, and we're not to covet. So it's interesting to see this, this pattern that God, you know, ex expansively and extensively is using the commandments to show the people, to show God's people, you know, what, uh, what they need to live in harmony. Um, Calvin uh, says this, the first foundation of righteousness is the worship of God. When this is overthrown in a culture, and this is, remember, this is in, in the 16th century, right? So when... Um, like the pieces of a shattered and fallen building are mangled and scattered. Apart from the fear of God, men do not preserve equity and love among themselves. Therefore we, all, therefore, we all need the worship of God as the beginning and foundation of righteousness. Just as the relationship with Yahweh is the beginning of the covenant, so the relationship between the children and their parents is the beginning of society. The inevitable point of departure for every human relationship, disobedience to parents. The first relationship beyond the relationship with Yahweh, who according to the Old Testament is the giver of life, is the relationship to the father and mother, who together are a channel of Yahweh's gift of life. No other human relationship is so fundamental and none is more important. So, you know, Calvin is pointing to the fact that there's also a conviction there, because as a parent, I know that we catechized our daughters, but you never feel like you did enough. Parents are to be the great conduit, right? of God's truth to our parent, to our children. You know, we are to teach them. The Old Testament talks about this, you know, in Deuteronomy 6, to walk in the way, you know, to walk when you're with your children, to teach them in the home, you know, the respect for God. And, uh, you know, I know that for a lot of us, we, we feel that we could have done even a better job than we did. But we, that, we, are, we are charged with that as parents to, to make sure that the truth of God's word the holiness of God, the love of God, is communicated. 
I like what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says in answer 64. The fifth commandment requires the preserving the honor and performing in duty of all duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. You know, not just to uh, those in, in a superior position to us, but also just in the general culture to show kindness, uh, to show, um, realize that people that are in a lower estate also deserve to be seen as made in the image of God. Um, and we talked about last week about the general disrespect that was unleashed in the culture during the 1960s, how radically things changed between 1960 and 1967, you know, where you have uh, uh, just a, a general disrespect for the institutions of the culture. I remember being uh, on the UCLA campus and, and seeing sit-ins, you know, where they disrupted classes, couldn't go on because of... Uh, the uh, student, students having, you know, upset about very various reasons, primarily the Vietnam War at the time, you know, protests against the Vietnam War. But it brought it was chaos. It was chaotic because you couldn't couldn't get to class. It brought brought everything you know to a standstill. Um, so this general disrespect in the culture, this this sense of um, we see, you know, we, we when Terry and I were first married, we were teaching parents and. Parents would come in to the group home. We had a, a group home with six, six males and later with six females. And a lot of the parents just didn't have a clue about, about uh, what, what it took to teach their children right from wrong. They, they didn't know to, first off, they didn't know how to give them an example. Now, kind of later in life, in these last years, as Terry's gone back to teaching, it amazes me when she comes home and tells me stories about uh, parents that come in and say, well, uh, my kid oversleeps, and that's why he gets to school late. Well, what does he do? Well, he's up, he's up, you know, uh, playing video games till one or two o'clock in the morning. So, what is the natural response? You think to yourself, well, how about <laughs> telling the child not to do that? You know, to get to bed at a decent hour. But it's like they're just kind of oblivious. Right? The, oh, I have the right to do that. You know, it's it, well, yeah, that's what what parenting is about. Morning, this. So this, it, it's like a, a, a pebble in a pond. The disrespect to parents titrates or, or resonates all the way through the culture. You know, we see a general disrespect for, for institutions. You know, what was the, the kind of mantra of the, 1960s, the late 60s was question authority. You know, question you know, those that, that are in a position of authority. And it, it is, you know, we see down to this day we're, we're paying the cost of that. Um, I can think of, uh, you know, my, my uh, mother used to give the answer that I think is the standard parental answer when I'd ask her, you know, why? Well, because I said so, right? But there's truth in that, right? The person and the parent in that role has the right to be able to set the standard, the right standard. You know? And unfortunately today we see a lot of parents that don't. Uh, <clears throat> I, learned, I learned that lesson that you, you didn't, uh, you didn't, you didn't uh, argue with that. That was like the final argument because I said so. so it came to an end at that point. Um, we are to respect authority because God is an authority over us, right? God our Father. We are, we are to uh, remember that this is put in place, that our parents are, you know, the, in, in the place of, of God to be able to give, communicate his truth and his word to us. I love the, uh, some of you are probably aware of the, the Ten Commandments song by Judy Rogers. Judy Rogers was a PCA pastor's wife who, 
wanted to have some songs for children's worship, and she went to her husband, who was a pastor, and said, why don't you write them? Well, she'd never written a song in her life. And through the course of about 10 to 15 years, she ended up writing a couple hundred songs. And uh, those were very much a, a great part of her teaching of the children, uh, because music is a way to convey God's truth, right? You can remember it, help to memorize it. <coughs> to this day, I memorized the, uh, without even trying, heard the Ten Commandments song. You, do you, many of you know that song? Yeah. God's, um, thou shalt have no other God but me. Before thou idol bow thy knee. Take not the name of God in vain, nor let the Sabbath day profane, and so forth and so on. It's a way to memorize. And uh, my girls can still sing that song all these years later. Yes? And what they often that's I was just gonna say that. Well you you see that, you know, throughout the culture. You think about I mean, one of, one of the saddest ones for me is how the Boy Scouts have been, right? There used to be a sense of, you know, you sent your boy to that and it would, you know, teach. And they do a lot of wonderful things, but it's certainly been, the reputation's been besmirched because of all the allegations of sexual abuse. Same way with the Catholic Church. I think the Catholic Church is pretty close to uh, going bankrupt because of all the lawsuits they have to defend against because of the pedophilia that went on in the church. Well, yeah. the Boy Scouts are dead. Yeah. Their, yeah, their enrollment, their enrollment is way down from, from what it used to be. Um, so you just see it all through the culture how that 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 has you know been manifested and how people have a great um, um, skepticism about organizations and it, it's directly tied to you know not abiding by what God says you know by the sinfulness of man. Um, so we got through those five last week, and we left off, we started with the sixth command, you shall not murder. God is, God is the Lord and giver of life, right? It said that in uh, Deuteronomy, it says that by the taking of life, another man's life will be taken. Now, this is not a popular idea in culture. California's legislature just passed legislation that says that there'll be no death penalty. And you think about how unfair that is to the victim, to the victim's family, you know, that God in his holiness and righteousness, says there has to be justice, there has to be equity, right? You take a life, the cost of that life is your life. And I know there's, it's a complex issue. There's been a lot of cases lately where because of DNA um, testing, they've shown that people have been put away that really were not the murderers. So we have to be very, very careful, obviously, at the application of this. But the idea being in the Old Testament was that you could not 
bring a charge against someone without at least two or three witnesses. You know, one of the things that was, that was taken very seriously is that when you make that charge, you couldn't just do it one person. You couldn't say this and condemn that person. There had to be, you know, cooperation. And that's part of our, you know, jurisprudence system today. You know, they, they, they go to great lengths to, when they're putting together a case, right, to bring witnesses in and to, and to um, um, you know, um, interview them to make sure that th this is not a false charge that's being put against this person. But the state of California, in its great wisdom, <coughs> has decided that there will be no, no penalty for murder, that it will be life, life imprisonment. Um, the, there's about 20 different words in Hebrew for um, murder, or for, but the one in the Old Testament is R-A-Z-T-A-C-H, Razzatak. And that word means the unlawful taking of life, right? So in this commandment, it's pointing to um, the taking of a life that's unjust. You know, there's lots of places, as, as someone had pointed out in the Old Testament, where it says that, you know, people would be taken out to the gate in stone uh, for disobedience to parents, for uh, uh, being, um, worshiping idols, adultery. Yeah, the, the, they were, they were, if someone was found in adultery, they were taken to the gate. So, <clears throat> thank God we have the grace, God's grace, you know. Um, but when we'll talk about that in a minute, how that's changed. Um, but we, you know, we see um, the great heartache that it brings about in families when, when a murder happens. And you want justice, right? Our whole jurisprudence system is the idea of delivering justice. The, the lady of, uh, if you look in the front of the Supreme Court, the lady of justice, she's got a blindfold on, right? Justice is supposed to be blind. It's supposed to be equitable. And because of the change in our culture, we see that often uh, you know, that, that is not exercised. Right? And it, it's led to a lot of uh, you know, very unjust decisions. Um, but the ultimate justice is in God's Right, right. But in... The, in in time, in, in this time, you know, I, I feel for those families that have to wait years and years because of the delays in the justice system. Sometimes it's five, 10, 15 years before final justice is, is absolutely, you know, provided. Matt, yes? Isn't the, just the idea of a executing somebody committed to murder, for instance, isn't it's not retribution, it's, it's making society safer by removing them from idea being that there had to be, you know, a balance that, that because of a life being taken, that a life, did, I'll, I'll get to it later on. Um, in, in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Jesus in the New Testament warns us that murder, you know, is also an issue of the heart. You know, it's not just a matter of physical murder, it's a matter of, you know, hatred. A matter of you know how our, our hearts you know can be uh, very um, uh, bent towards you know hating our brother and, and and Jesus holds that standard you know that it's just not when we think about physical murder 
Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. The Heidelberg Catechism 105 says, I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds. Um, one of the things that concerns me, and I'm a geriatric social worker, and one of the things that concerns me is that in the culture there's a rising tide of uh, um, saying that um, euthanasia is legitimate. And we've seen this you know, in Europe, and now it's taking hold here. We have three states currently that say that uh, doctor-assisted suicide is an okay thing. And uh, there was an article in uh, Medical Ethics from about 2010 by a man named Wesley J. Smith quoting a doctor from, I forget it was John Hopkins, either John Hopkins or Harvard Medical School. And this doctor said, we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all other animals and alone possessing a mortal soul. Once this religious mumbo-jumbo has been stripped away, we may continue to see normal members of our species as possessing greater capacities of rationality, self-consciousness, communication, than members of the other species. But we will not regard as sacrosanct the life of each and every member of our species. Scary, scary stuff. And of course, then, you see in the culture, uh, the worst of all, the, the saddest of all, uh, the, the estimate now is we're approaching uh, 48 million abortions since 1973. 48 million lives. Well, so the actual candidate now advocates yeah. mass yeah. abortion. And, and, you know, that's, 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 you know, that's the gas you know, post-birth abortion, right? I mean, how dark, how um, very jaded the heart can become, you know, when, when we get away from God. Um, I want to kind of pick up, because it looks at the clock, and it's amazing how fast this timing going up here. Um, the seventh commandment, uh, you shall not commit adultery. God is a God of purity, of faithfulness. God honors the marital covenant. You know, it was interesting reading, it was talking about how the Reformation really restored the beauty of sexual love between a husband and wife. If you read some of the early church fathers, they were almost embarrassed by the idea of, um, you know, that, that the, the sexual union was meant to be strictly for procreation. Tertullian actually said that he would rather see the, the, uh, the, uh, the end of the human race. In other words, no procreation, which would eventually bring, you know, without children, we, 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 would, all, we would all disappear. Uh, St. Augustine said that Sex was okay as long as passion wasn't part of it, you know. So uh, Leland, Leland Riken was Philip Riken's father, and he said one of the most embarrassing things of his teenage years was on Christianity Today, his father was a professor at Wheaton, and he'd written an article, and Christianity Today decided to uh, feature that article, and the article's title was Puritans and Sex. And basically the, the focus of it is the restoration that at the time of the Reformation that the Reformation saw that this was a great gift that God had given within the boundaries of marriage, you know, that, that it's a beautiful gift to be able to, to exercise. Um, the seventh commandment, from, this is from the Riken commentary, the seventh commandment in basic form forbids intercourse outside of marriage, but it also include every form of misconduct, premarital sex, pornography. Um, you talk to pastors that, that are involved in the counseling ministry, uh, just and overwhelming amongst Christian males. Why? Well, because it's so accessible. It used to be you had to go to the bad part of town, right, and, and sneak around and, and go to, to the adult store. Well, now you open up your computer and there it is. 
it's a pervasive problem, and it's a sad thing to be able to say that even within the church, you know, that a lot of counseling pastors have to deal with this, that, that men struggle with this. Um, also are forbidden all the sins that lead up to adultery. God calls husband and, and wife to nurture their fellowship with one another. It is unlawful for a couple to grow apart from one another physically, spiritually, emotionally, or sexually. You know, I, I heard uh, Gary Smalley years ago talk about be careful of the eyes that in his counseling of, of, of marriages that fall, he said it didn't start with, you know, meeting someone at work and, and saying, let's go to bed. It started with, you know, oh, this is an interesting person, and then getting into conversations with him. And then the next thing is touching of hands, right? It, it just like it cascades down to the last, the last thing being, you know, um, the actual sexual act. So he says, be careful of your eyes. Be careful of engaging anyone that's not your spouse, you know, in that way. There's not to be intimacy. I think one of the great rules that, that Tim said that he um, used from, from a seminary, they said, never go to lunch with a woman unless there's someone else there. And never be alone. With counseling, uh, Gary's... Um, at uh, Westminster, the, the, the rule always was if a woman came into council that the door stayed open. There never was a closed door, you know, for accountability's sake, you know, so that nothing, nothing could be, you know, untoward. Another quotation I saw that was interesting is, an adultery, adultery is worthy of death. A man who will betray his wife will betray anyone or anything. Adultery is treason against the family, and God hates it. You know, and, and we see in the culture with television and movies, you know, that uh, one television producer actually said that the reason that a lot of dramas today have extramarital affairs is because uh, faithful sex between a married man and woman is boring, right? But there's spice when, when someone is violating the marital, you know, and it's, 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 it's really sad. So this word, the Greek word, porneia, does that designate? Porneia, pornography, right? We, we get the word pornography from porneia. So any form of that which is outside... Um, and, and uh, you know, in counseling, Terry and I, three years, have seen the great heartache that it brings, not just to the, the, the parties involved, the husband and wife, but to children, you know, the, the conflict that it brings about. Um, you know, Terry uh, and other teachers that I know have talked about the great problem of kids coming in and saying, I forgot my homework. Well, why did you forget your homework? Well, on Monday and Tuesday, I stay with Dad. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm with Mom. Saturday and Sunday, I'm with Dad. You know, it, it brings this disruption in life. You know, and, and, and what, uh, what a child doesn't understand, you know, is, is that, you know, this, this, why is this happening? So, once again, as the commandments point to, to a much broader statement, it isn't just adultery, it's all the things that related to uh, you're not using the gift of sex, the gift of our sexuality in a proper way. Um, as sexual freedom has increased in our culture, so is divorce, rates of adultery. Um, you know, certainly ascribed to the rise in statements about the sexual abuse of children is also related to that, right? Uh, so once again, you see this, this, this statement out from the pond. Paul says this, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans do, who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of their brother or their sister. When we you know, use someone, we're using them. You know, it, it, it's, it's a use that, that God forbids. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and are warned before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, 
but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And we see this in, in 1 Corinthians 6, right? We are, our, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so we are sinning against God. So I could go on and, and talk a lot more about this, but I want, I want to make sure we get through. Um, stealing our culture. You know, we see this in many, many ways. Um, the stealing of, at, at my work, we have to do inventory. Why do we have to do inventory? Because supplies disappear, right? Stealing goes on in the workplace. Stealing goes on by employees. They say that uh, last year, $200 billion worth of productivity was lost because of employees that weren't doing their job, doing what they were supposed to be doing. Um, the Jewish word, the Hebrew word, ganef, you know, it's kind of a, in, in, the, in the Hebrew community, a ganef was someone that, that was a disreputable person. Well, that's a thief, to steal, to, to walk away with that which doesn't belong to you. Stealing covers all conventional types of theft, burglary, robbery, larceny, uh, hijacking, shoplifting, embezzlement, extortion, and racketeering. But it's also the mis this misuse of time. You know, we are called to be redemptive in the use of our time. And certainly, one of the things that becomes a big black hole in a lot of homes is television right? and, the, and the internet. Right? Uh, I've I've been amazed, and I touched on this last week, at how, how an hour of time can suddenly vanish when you sit down before the computer and you start clickbaiting, you know, going through the various things that are on there, and you find yourself, I didn't get to what I started doing, right? It's not, not a productive use of time. Um, I like this quote by Martin Luther. He identified certain men of his day as gentlemen swindlers or big operators. Far from being pickpockets and sneak thieves who loot a cash box, they sit on thrones and are called great lords and honorable, and yet, with a great show of legality, they rob and steal. One of the things you see is how our government, right, often has, has made laws that are onerous. And, we, you know, we are called to obey the laws, I understand. But there are ways where certain people benefit, you know, from some of the, some of the theft of the government, right? Um, we see, um, for instance, I had a... I had a, a mechanic, and he talked about how the county came in and uh, decided that after he'd been in business for 30 years, that he needed to have some kind of filter on his, um, his sandblasting um, uh, building where they sandblasted cars. And he said, I didn't have understood that. You know, for 30 years I could do this, but nobody said anything. And then three weeks later, he got a bill for $1,500 for that visit. Right? So <laughs> we see ways in which the government can be sometimes far too onerous in, 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 uh, in, in taking that which belongs. Um, Calvin says, it follows, therefore, that not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but those who also seek gain from the loss of others, accumulate wealth by unlawful practices, and are more devoted to their private advantage than equity. Right? So the stealing, stealing in many ways. But the greatest thing, the reason that it's a, a violation of God's commandment is because it's saying that I don't trust in God's providence. My, my wife convicted me 25 years ago. I haven't touched a slot machine or bought a lotto ticket in 25 years. Because she said, aren't you really saying that God isn't doing enough, God isn't doing a good job? And it, it got to my heart. You know, and I'm not condemning any, anyone that, you know, puts side money in their budget and to, to play a slot machine here and there. But I just chose not to do it because I really feel that. You know, it's a way of stating uh, I need to depend upon God's providence, that, that God will meet my needs. Um, far too fast to go through, but lying. Uh, my, one of my relatives walked away from the faith, and I asked her why. And she said, well, because I just can't believe Ananias and Sapphira. I can't believe that that really happened, that two people died. Well, if you understand God's holiness, it, it makes perfect sense, right? Our, our tongues are to be beacons of truth, right? 
And what did Ananias and Sapphira remember from Acts 9? They sold a piece of land. They had every right to keep the, 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 that land, but instead they came and said that they gave all of it, when in fact they kept a portion back. Ananias comes in. They asked him. He says, yes, I gave it all. Boom, he dies, right? Sapphira comes in. Same thing. You know, um, God is a God of holiness. And you know, it's interesting, too, in Revelation. It says in Revelation 28, for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, for sorcerers, adulterers, and all liars, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire in the second death. So God takes it seriously. In the 10th commandment, uh, Paul says that he kept the commandments well until he got to the 10th commandment, right? In the Acts 7, he talks about how he realized that he was a coveter, that he coveted. What's the, the thing that's wrong about coveting? It's also saying that we're not satisfied with God's provision, right? Um, I, I know in my life, there are things in my life I've coveted. And, you know, we need to guard our heart and be aware of when we see things like, like that. Um, the commandment is about contentment, you know, trusting that God will meet our need and being content in what we have um, and, and seeing that God is a God of providence and that he will... Um, he, God commands us not to covet because he's been trusted to give us everything we truly need, for he is our righteous provider. So that's awfully fast. Um, I, I need, because there's other lessons starting next week, but if you have questions or you'd like to have some of the resources that I use, please you know, let me know. Call me or email me at chinakids at cox.net. I thank you for your attention, and let's just remember the holiness and the beauty of God's law. So let's pray. Father God, as we go now uh, to the precious, most precious moment of the week, as we can bring our worship to you, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be fully engaged in listening to your word. And we pray for Tim for his strength in sharing it. May we be uh, uh, active listeners. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of this Sabbath day. May we use it wisely and may we rest only in you. And we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you.